0: Welcome to North Shore Church. I'm Scott Fredrickson. I'm an elder apprentice here at North Shore Church. And uh, very excited to see such a full church today on a beautiful Father's Day uh, weekend. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are out there today this morning. And um, our reading today is going to be from 2 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 24. Now Joab, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourner's garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and so they will destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, "Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you." And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on, <clears throat> on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house." Let the king and his throne be guiltless. And the king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair on your son shall fall to the ground Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, but he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say to the Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me. And the and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord will set me at rest. For my Lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God will be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my Lord the king speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go back, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight. My Lord the king, in the king that has granted the request of the servant, so Joab arose and went to Gersher and brought, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. This ends 2 Samuel 14. Let's pray. Lord God, as we gather this morning in your presence... Guide our hearts and our minds this morning. Remove our egos and and wandering thoughts that we may see you clearly. Convict our hearts that we would not only understand the importance of, of these scriptures, but apply them to real life. Speak through Pastor Duncan this morning that his words would be your words. And apart from the Holy Spirit, his words is just noise. Penetrate our hearts with the truth, the truth that only comes from your word. Bless all of us here today, Lord, and those who are listening online. Thank you for getting us here together safely. Lord, as, as, as you say when two or three gather in your name, that you are there with them. Protect us from Satan and anything that is not from you. If anyone is going through trials this morning or today or even on, our way to, on their way to church, struggling with health issues or, or any of the problems that we face, Would you, our good shepherd, come quickly to help and restore? Bring us to a place of peace that transcends all understanding, to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Help us to be grateful for what we have this morning and joyful even in our trials, knowing that our Lord and Savior is a constant presence in our life. Lord, we just ask on this Father's Day that you would just bless all the fathers here today, Lord, um, and just uh, we just pray that the fathers are raising their kids up in the way that you want them to go, Father. We pray for protection on everyone here today, and we pray this in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ's name, Amen.
1: Well, as you might have guessed, we return this week to the book of Second Samuel as we survey the life and reign of King David. As we pick up the story where we left off a couple of weeks ago, we see that David continues to experience the tragic consequences that his sin with Bathsheba has brought on him. You recall that God told David that because of his sin, the Lord would cause violence to come up from within his own family. And that was fulfilled when David's third-born son Absalom brutally murdered his first-born son Amnon in retribution for Amnon's brutal rape of Absalom's sister, Tamar. This is very much a soap opera at this point, isn't it? Here in chapter 14, the author picks up the story three years after Absalom has killed Amnon and after David has fled the scene as a fugitive from the law and goes to live in Gesher with his in-laws. Verse 1 in chapter 14 introduces all that's going to happen in the rest of the chapter. He says, Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Joab, as you may recall, was the king's nephew, as well as being the commander of the army of Israel, and probably he knew what was on David's mind about as well as just about anybody. The Hebrew in the verse is very difficult to interpret when it says, the king's heart went out to Absalom. That makes it sound like it's going out to Absalom in sympathy, like he's longing for him, like he's missing him. The NIV basically says that. Most interpreters take it to be a different way. That word actually is negative. In other words, he's thinking negatively about David. I don't know what's true, but I do know in chapter 13, he was in some ways longing for his son. So I'm going to take it to be he was either just thinking about his son or he was in some way longing for his son. As we've seen before, Joab is an independent spirit and he doesn't hesitate to do things independent of David when he thinks they're in the nation's best interest. So behind David's back, he contrives an elaborate plan. And that plan is intended to compel David to invite his fugitive son Absalom back to Jerusalem. The story divides into five parts. The first one is by far the longest. We could divide it in five, calling it the ruse, the reaction, the response, the revelation, and the results. And I do not use alliteration very often, because it tends to make the text say something it doesn't, but it just happens, I think, to work here. First, let's look at Joab's ruse in verses 2 through 7. We don't know, but it's possible that Joab had earlier approached David about bringing Absalom back, from his seclusion in Gesher. We don't know that, but if he did, we do know this, that at this point he had not been at all open to that. And so at some point, Joab decides to employ a means of persuading David to bring Absalom back, and that means of persuasion was not dissimilar than how God spoke through Nathan, compelling David to repent of his sin. He told a story, he told a parable. Joab chooses a wise woman. That's the, that's the term that's given to her. We don't know whether that's a technical term or whether he, she just happened to be a person who was deeply respected. He come, she comes in, makes a completely fictitious, made-up story to David, designed to get him to bring his son back to Gesher. She was from Tekoa, and Tekoa was very close to Joab's hometown in Bethlehem, so we can surmise that these two go way back. He knew about this woman. He employs her to perpetrate this ruse or this deception. He puts words in her mouth to communicate a story that would hopefully change David's mind about Absalom, after Joab tells this woman to approach the king dressed as a woman in mourning, we read beginning in verse 4, When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead and your servant has two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them. One struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also, thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth." Joab wants to have this story to have the same impact that Nathan's story had back in chapter 12 when David was repenting because of what was, stor- what was in the story. But there are some significant differences between these two stories. And this is where it gets a little bit complicated. So if you're finding yourself getting a little bit lost, don't worry, hang on and come back. But this is kind of thick sledding here, so, so turn up the caffeine or something because you have to think about this. In chapter 12, you'll remember the story. God, through Nathan, speaks to David of a poor man who owned a single ewe lamb that he and his family had cherished. The poor man in the story represented Uriah the Hittite, and the ewe lamb represented Bathsheba. Well, in the story, a rich man required a lamb to sacrifice, but rather than take one of the many from his flocks and the herds, he instead procures this poor man's one single ewe lamb and instead sacrifices it. The rich man clearly represents David, who though having many wives and many concubines, instead stole Uriah's one Bathsheba in a godless abuse of power. You'll recall that for some time after the event, David, before the story, He's running from God. He's running from his conscience, and he's refused to repent. So Nathan tells the story of the ewe lamb to cause David to see his sin for what it really was, which was a strong rebuke on him in the hope that he would repent of his sin, and by God's grace, he did. The main difference between that story in chapter 12 and this one, which is Joab's story through this woman he hires, is the story that the prophet Nathan told was an accurate and very clear representation of how God saw David's sin with Bathsheba. As it relates to Absalom's murder of Amnon, Joab's story however is not nearly as accurate. So let's think about some important differences between, on the one hand, the fact of Absalom's murder of Amnon, and on the other, this fictional account that supposedly, in some ways, represents the murdering of one brother of another. Here are some differences. First, the two sons of this woman in her story are in a fight out in a field somewhere. There are no witnesses. Allegedly, things get out of hand, and it results in the death of one of the brothers. Now, those brothers in this woman's story are supposed to be mirroring Amnon and Absalom and their conflict. But unlike the woman's story, Absalom's murder of Amnon was not accidental, and it was observed by many eyewitnesses, including many of his brothers. Amnon's death was not the result of a brother's spontaneous outburst of rage, Absalom had, in fact, we know, spent two years waiting for just the right moment to kill his brother, Amnon. The fictional son of this woman committed manslaughter, while Absalom is guilty of first-degree murder. That's a big difference in Hebrew law. Second, the woman says that one reason why her guilty son should not be executed is because he was her only surviving son. Not the case in David's family. David had several sons. When Amnon died, there were many brothers, in addition to Absalom, who could have taken the place of Absalom or Amnon. A third difference between these two stories is that this wise woman from Tekoa pleads for her son's life because if he were executed, she and her wing of the family would have lost all their land to another wing of the family, to the uncles and aunts. That's the, that's the law in, in the Hebrew court system. That's a significant part of the story, and a major woman that this woman, reason this woman pleads for mercy from the king. But if Absalom had been executed for the murder of Amnon, nothing like that would have occurred in David's family. There would have been no transfer of any real estate or change in inheritance. It just would have gone to the next surviving son. Finally, the woman from Tekoa was a widow, which means that if her son were to be executed, she would have had no one to take care of her. Okay, that's clearly not the case in David's family. There are lots of people that could have cared. Now, why are those differences important? Well, in the story that Nathan told to David back in chapter 12, the intention, as we said, was to awaken David's conscience by causing him to compare his sin with the sin of this rich man in the story with the idea that that would compel him to see his sin and then repent of it. In the case of Absalom's self-imposed exile, David had committed no sin to repent of. Okay? In not bringing Absalom back to Jerusalem, this woman charges David with doing such a thing against the people of God. So she clearly thinks that this is wrong that he hadn't brought Absalom back, but he's not guilty of any sin. What does she mean? Well, she claimed that for Absalom, the crown prince, to be kept away from Jerusalem, was in some way hurtful to God's people. But again, Absalom, was his exile David's doing? And the answer is no. Absalom is a fugitive running from the law. David didn't banish him to Gesher. Also, even if David had exiled Absalom, would it have been sinful for David to keep him away from Jerusalem when he'd murdered his own brother? No, in fact, the law would have required that he execute his son because he was guilty of first-degree murder. Is someone who would do that kind of thing to his brother qualified to be the next king of Israel? No. In truth, David's error in judgment was not in his failure to bring Absalom back. If there was an error in judgment, it was not pursuing Absalom and avenging the death of Amnon three years earlier. Back in chapter 12, Nathan told his story about the selfish rich man so that David would do the right thing by repenting of his sin because he'd been ignoring his conscience. But in Joab's story, through this woman, the intention was to cause David to do the questionable, or maybe even wrong, thing by essentially granting Absalom a pardon. Okay? The story Joab has this woman tell is an attempt to manipulate David's emotions into doing something of questionable legality, pardoning an innocent or a guilty man. That's why it includes all of these heart-rending details about what the execution would do to her. He's trying, he's pulling at David's heartstrings to get him to bring back Absalom because of a sentimental attachment to his son. Okay, and we see later on in 2 Samuel, what a strong sentimental attachment David has to Absalom. When he's killed, he says, oh Absalom, Absalom, and Joab comes and says, you need to shut up about Absalom. Okay, after this woman completes her mission in pulling off this Ruth, next we see David's reaction. We see this in verses 8 through 11. After the woman relates this contrived family feud, then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please, let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. You'll notice something about David's response here. It changes incrementally. This is not an all-in-one. He's moving. He's in process here. Notice his initial reaction was to tell them, you go home, let me think about it, and I'll issue a ruling for you. She's not satisfied with that. She wants to compel David to render his decision immediately. And in order to sweeten the pot, she says, And if any fallout comes from this decision you make about pardoning my son, let the blame fall on me and not on you. Well, after assuring her that he would protect the widow from any fallout, The woman then tells David what she wanted all along. And that is, invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood will kill no more. What she's doing here is she's asking David to swear, to take an oath. What she's doing is she's asking David to render a legal decision to prevent anyone from killing her fictional son. So David finally does swear an oath to do just that. That's what he says in verse 11. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Now in the ancient Near East, when you see the expression, as the Lord lives, that's an oath formula. So he's swearing an oath that your son is going to be kept safe. Why? Why was it important? Why was it so important to this woman that David swear an oath to protect this woman's son when her entire story is made up. Why did she want to get him to that place? We see this in the third part of the story, which is in the woman's response to David. Beginning in verse 12, Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die, we're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my Lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my Lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my Lord, the king, is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Now we see why it's so important for this woman that David swear by a sacred oath that he would protect his surviving son, even though this son doesn't exist. The reason is because, as Joab had instructed her, when David swears to protect her son, She then turns that oath back on David and claims that in swearing an oath to show mercy to her son, he was demonstrating how wrong he was in failing to show mercy for his own banished son. I told you this was complicated. In other words, this woman is hoping that in David's oath to give mercy to her son, he would see his own alleged moral obligation to likewise show mercy to Absalom by bringing him back to Jerusalem. So essentially the point she's making is this. If you're swearing to protect my son, who is guilty of murder, but these extenuating family circumstances make him worthy of your mercy, Why have you not also pardoned your own son, who murdered someone, but who also has extenuating circumstances connected with the murder of his brother? Now, we've already seen that the two sets of extenuating circumstances are not the same. But this exchange also reveals other problems with the story. In verses 13 to 14, the woman refers to Absalom as one who had been banished. Now, we've seen before, banishment is a form of punishment, and it's a form of punishment that was given to somebody who was seen as a threat to the state, and you get them out of the country so they're no longer a threat to the state, okay? Absalom. Had not been banished by David. He was living in self imposed exile as a fugitive from justice. Perhaps most importantly, this woman gives a theological justification why David should bring Absalom back, and it's really faulty. In verse 14, she says, We must all die, we're all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, but God will not take away life, and He devises means so that the banished ones will not remain an outcast. This woman is saying that though death invariably comes to all of us, God is essentially merciful. And when it comes to banished sons that have been cast out, he finds ways to bring them back. So her main theological point is that David, in not showing mercy to to Absalom, is not accurately representing God, because God would bring back the banished son. Okay, That's faulty. She doesn't cite any Old Testament law to support this. And there's no mention of the requirement of this guy having to repent or confess his sin before he comes back. It's just, carte blanche, give him him a, a pardon. She's also wrong because, though God does make provision in the law for Jews who had killed someone to make sure they had their day in court, That mercy was not for people like Absalom, who in a premeditated way murdered someone in front of multiple witnesses. So her theological justification for this completely falls apart. Even though we've seen that the parallels between this woman's fictitious son and Absalom are not nearly as clear as she makes them out to be, those differences seem to be lost on David. And her story ends up compelling him to retrieve Absalom. In other words, it's pulled at his heartstrings. Notice how clever she is in her attempt to disguise her real intentions here. One of the things that makes this text so confusing here is because she's talking about Absalom and then all of a sudden, in verse 15, she immediately switches turf here and she goes back to her own phony request about her fictitious son. She does that to obscure her real point by bracketing her requests about Absalom in the middle of her own fictitious problems with her family. Finally, let's look, or let's let's next look at the woman's revelation in verses 18 to 20. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king says, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Now, David doesn't mention any reason why he suspects this might have come from Joab. Perhaps it's because Joab and he had talked about doing this earlier. We don't know. However, it was that David sees Joab's hand in this ruse, it's clear that he suspects his involvement. The woman is honest with David, completely spills the beans about Joab's involvement. She also lays on a rather thick layer of flattery for David. She tells him that he has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. So she ascribes to David godlike qualities, perhaps to try to keep him from getting upset with her because she's been lying to him. The point is that the jig is up. Joab has been outed, fingered, exposed, and that leads us to the final results of this ruse, which is really the main point of the story. Beginning in verse 21, we read, Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab says, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. One of the main points here is that David is convicted by Joab's staged drama with this woman from Tekoa. So he orders Joab to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. Joab, very grateful, probably because the king didn't get mad at him for pawning off this ruse. And so he's very thankful for the fact that he agrees to his terms. We know from the rest of 2 Samuel, however, that David makes an utterly disastrous decision here. That is, as we see in verse 24, while David did allow Absalom to be brought back to Jerusalem, he orders Joab to not allow him back in the palace, to not be part of the rule of the court at all, and not to see David's face. That made matters even worse between David and Absalom, because until this time, the distance between the father and the son had been determined by Absalom when he fled Jerusalem as a fugitive. But now the distance between the father and the son is set by David, the father. Before, Absalom was in self-imposed exile, but now David does formerly and actively banish Absalom from his presence. He can come to Jerusalem, I don't want him watching me, I don't want him seeing me, I don't want him around me. That's banishment. So what good does it do to Absalom to come back to Jerusalem as the heir apparent to the throne, but he can't participate in the life of the royal court? What good is it to anyone to have Absalom living in Jerusalem if his relationship with the king is not reconciled? As we'll see in the weeks to come, Lord willing, the results of David's foolish decision are horrific. This estranged relationship between David and Absalom in Jerusalem lasted two more years. So with the three years separating them while he's in Geshur, this meant that David and Absalom have essentially no relationship for five years. And as we see in chapter 15, Absalom grows to greatly resent this. This prolonged estrangement surely made it easier for Absalom to develop hatred for his father that eventually relates in an attempted coup which brings David into some of the most challenging and difficult moments of his entire life. And it happened here when he banishes him from his presence. As we close, let's think about two points of application. First of all, as the king of Israel, we know that one of the main roles of the king is to represent God to his people, to help the people better see what God is like. That's part, that's why God chooses David, a man after his own heart, because he wanted someone that would accurately represent him to the people. Well, the truth of the matter is, is Jesus, as the son of David, does an infinitely better job of representing the Father than David does here. Jesus shows us what the father's love is like toward an errant son in Luke chapter 15. The prodigal son, after rejecting his family and living an absolutely decadent life, squandering all that his father has given him, finally, in the midst of that hog pit, comes to himself and he heads back home to apologize to the father. Verse 20, "'And he arose and came to his father, "'but while he was still a long way off, "'his father saw him and felt compassion "'and ran and embraced him and kissed him. "'And the son said to him, "'Father, I have sinned against heaven, "'and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. We don't know whether Absalom would have, like the prodigal son, have come to himself and in humility come to David and confess his sin. We don't know that. But As a father, David never gave him that chance. He never gave him that chance. David could have shown justice here and had his son executed, and that would have been the most legally responsible thing to do. But he's the chief judge of the land, and so he had the power also to show mercy and work at reconciling with Absalom. But in bringing Absalom to Jerusalem without bringing him into his presence, he shows neither justice nor mercy. Neither one. The point for us is, in my experience, many Christians live as if their Heavenly Father treats them like David treats Absalom. Too many believers live with the lie that their Heavenly Father must be mad or profoundly disappointed with them, and they're they're feeling estranged, almost continually. Brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. Too many believers live as if, like David and Absalom, God is their father who's legally forgiven them, but on a personal level, he's perpetually disappointed in them. The truth is, Jesus didn't go to the cross to win a purely legal pardon for our sins. He went to the cross to establish a warm, intimate, father-child relationship between God and redeemed sinners. That's what the blood of Jesus does. God is not a father like David was to Absalom. He wants us to live in intimacy and close fellowship with him, the joy of the Lord being our strength. He loves us in the same way the father of the prodigal son loves his son. If you sinned or if you've done something to break fellowship with your father, confess it. Ask God to give you the grace to repent of it and live in the assurance that you are a beloved child of God. Hebrews four fifteen and 16 is so helpful here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The ground of our confidence with God is that Jesus experienced the same temptations that we have yet without sin so he knows who we are. The Old Testament says pretty much the same thing, a little differently, in Psalm 103. It says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. There are probably 20% of you that are budding perfectionists. You really need this verse. Perfectionists don't do well as Christians. They tend to be very unhappy a good bit of the time because they forget God knows they're dust. Dust. That would not be a complimentary designation, dust. Okay. Jesus didn't die on a cross to establish some sort of aloof, distant relationship with God. Don't believe that lie that you can never enjoy intimacy with God because of something you did or didn't do, or because of the whole rash of things that you've done or haven't done. Trust him and tell him you want what you had with him at one time. Warmth and love and acceptance and confidence and grace. He wants that for you more than you do. He sent his son to die on a cross so that you could have that. Nobody is more serious about having an intimate relationship with you than he is. Believe the truth of the gospel. Open your heart to him. Live in the bold confidence of his redeeming love through Jesus Christ. Second, from this story of David, uh, we see a truth we've seen many times before, but it's just so often in Hebrew narrative we're going to repeat it, and that is God sovereignly works out his plan in your life, even in the midst of our very messy contexts. If you don't know the end of this story, it would be impossible to trace God's hand in this. He is barely mentioned in this part of 2 Samuel, and he's certainly not overtly revealing himself in any recognizable kind of way. This is just all a mess. As we said, this is like a soap opera playing out. Yet because we know from the story what his end purposes are, you can trace back and see what he's doing here, at least in some limited way. We know that God's endgame in David's life, as it relates to his sons, is Solomon. Solomon's going to succeed him. Now Solomon came much later in the birth order than Amnon or Absalom. So how does Solomon end up as king of Israel? Well, there are many answers to that question, but one of them is what we see here in this messy chapter of David's life. First we have Amnon. He's the crown prince. But he wasn't God's choice to succeed David. So through Absalom's hatred, he eliminates him. Absalom is next in line for David's throne. We don't know what happened to number two. It never says. He's number three, and so he's next in line. He's clearly not qualified to be a king. He's guilty of fratricide. He's killed his brother. So as we'll see, he too is eliminated, and the seeds of his destruction are sown in this very story this morning. This is the beginning of the end for Absalom. The point is that in the midst of all the sexual sin, and the hatred, and the murder, and the family strife, and the imminent uprising against David by Absalom, God, in the midst of all of that mess, is working his plan to achieve his desired goal, which is that the reign of Solomon will come, and Solomon will succeed his father, David. And that, of course, was spawned out of the messy marriage between David and Bathsheba. So. The bottom line for us is if you're in a place in your life where the bottom has dropped out of some area of your life, or maybe four or five, whether it's your marriage, your career, your relationships, understand this. In the midst of the mess, God is still there. God hasn't abandoned you, even though you're looking closely for him and you don't see him. You haven't seen the end yet. And there is an end, and God is working to bring you there, and it's a good place. The fact that you can't possibly see how that's working around in your life is perfectly irrelevant. That's why it's a walk of faith, because half the time we can't see what is going on, but we're called to trust that he has something in mind for us that is good, and he does. I dare say David had absolutely no clue how God could possibly be working in his life during this time period of his sin, time of sin after Bathsheba. I'm sure he just felt it was one big mess after another. And yet God is still working to achieve what he wants out of David's life. May God give us the grace to live in the boldness, in the bold confidence before God, fueled by his grace, trusting in him that he's at work even in the messiest parts of our life for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a complicated text and it's easy to get lost. And, but God, we're just so grateful that your word speaks to us. Father, I, I pray for myself. I pray for anybody here who really sees the father relationship they have with you more in lines of David and Absalom. Having a relationship, but really not being wild about each other. Father, I just pray that you would you would just expose that lie and I pray God that you would just help them to remember the prodigal son give grace to repent if that's necessary and enable us to know what the glory that you've purchased for us on the cross is like you reconcile with sinners God if there's anybody here today that's living with a sense of aloofness from God I pray God that you would show them that you died to give them intimacy. And Father, if there are people here today who just don't know you and don't have a relationship with you, then Father, I pray you would help them to see you sent your son to the cross to save people just like them. Father, I pray for those people who right now maybe their life is a mess. It's just dripping with chaos. Father, help them to see that you haven't abandoned them, that you're right there in the mix. The fact that they can't see you does not mean that you're not there. God, help all of us to live with that assurance for Jesus' sake. And in his name, amen.
2: Amen. We're going to end our time together uh, worshiping through songs, so if you would stand and join us. What gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer? holy bound to his oh how strange and divine i can sing all is mine yet not i but through christ my side the savior he will stay i labor on in weakness and rejoicing for in my need his power is displayed to this i hold my shepherd will defend Jesus fled and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave
1: All the people said